The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good morning. If you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, is where we'll be this morning in our text. For those men who may have been with us Yesterday morning in our men's Bible study, this will sound uh, very much familiar since we looked at this passage yesterday morning and uh, were able to glean some good insight from it. But I wanted to uh, to share with it with you this morning for those who weren't there, so that we can learn. Uh, you too can learn from it, and we can expound more upon it even more than we did yesterday. John chapter 15, and. Uh, Our text primarily this morning is verses 18 through verse 4 of chapter 16. John chapter 15, verse 18 through 16, verse 4. And uh, let me read for you those verses, and then uh, we'll begin our, our study of it this morning. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. In verse 1 of chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Let's pray once again as we begin our time in the Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now for the moments that we have to, Lord, to meditate upon your Word. We ask now that you would Clear our thoughts, Lord, may our attention and our minds be focused now upon what you desire us to learn through this text. Lord, we thank you uh, for the comfort that we have through your word, Lord, and we pray that our brother James and 
Sister Betty would find comfort in your word in these moments as they grieve their loss, Lord, and we grieve with them. Lord, we commit now this hour into your hands, and we may your name be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, this passage comes in the context of the Last Supper, as it's being partaken of. And uh, if you were here on Wednesday or Sunday evening, the pastor was speaking in John chapter 13 about uh, Judas's betrayal and also uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. This all is in the same context here, that evening in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and prays and and then, as we know, is betrayed by Judas and taken away to be uh, to to Pilate and to to be condemned. And so we understand then in this context that Jesus, this is his last words to the disciples, his final exhortation to them before his death, his final thoughts, his encouragement, and uh, in ways in which he can prepare them for his departure. And so here in verses 18 through, as I said, chapter 16, verse 4, we see Christ's encouragement to them as he foresees the persecution that they are going to face from the world. And here uh, Jesus is going to help them by revealing to them the reasons for which they are going to face persecution and then how they are to overcome that persecution, the reasons for which they are going to face persecution And then, as we said, the purpose or how they are to overcome these persecutions when they arrive. Suffering is a common theme throughout the New Testament. And the kind of suffering that the Christians experienced in the New Testament is far worse than any one of us has ever experienced. I think we can all agree on that. And... Jesus, on many occasions, warned the disciples of the unavoidable persecution that they would have to face in light of their relationship to Christ. And here, in, as I said just a moment ago, in John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus is preparing his disciples to face persecution. And then in Chapter 16, verse 1, he tells us the purpose for which he is forewarning them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so everything up until this point, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be, should not be made to stumble. This is the purpose for which Paul, or for which Jesus is forewarning his disciples, so that they may not stumble. Well, what does it mean to be to be made stumble or to stumble? We'll get that we'll get to that in a moment. First, we need to look at the reasons for which he is forewarning them. And we see this in the beginning of verse 18. Jesus says, "If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you." The first thing that Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage that is that persecution is inevitable. It is going to come. Although he begins by saying if, as if it's conditional, Jesus knew that persecution was inevitable. How do we know this? Well, we look down 
at verse 20. In the second half of verse 20, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We ask ourselves, did they persecute Jesus? Yes, he did. They did. Therefore, it is implied that they will also persecute followers of Christ, the disciples. So Jesus is not speaking to them as if this is a conditional thing. Maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. Persecution is inevitable. And so Jesus is preparing them by forewarning of that, forewarning them about this and the reasons for which they're going to be persecuted. Thus, really, it's not a matter of if they're going to be persecuted. It's a matter of when the persecution will come. Paul reconfirms this idea in his letter to Timothy later on and in, in after Christ has departed and Paul's ministry has begun. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, saying this, But you, that is Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And then he tells Timothy this, he says in verse 12, Yes, and all those, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's inevitable. It's an inevitable fact about our relationship and our walk with Christ. We will face persecution. It's just a matter of when. Not a matter of if. The persecution of Christians through the ages consequently should not be astonishing to us. We've seen it, but we should not be astonished by it. Jesus foretold that it would happen, and and Paul reconfirms it in his letter to Timothy. Jesus himself forewarned of the world's hatred towards Christians And the rest of the New Testament, the early church in the last 2,000 years confirms it. It does happen. And our time may be drawing nearer and quicker than we perceive in which we will be persecuted as well. You have to remember at the time in which Jesus is writing to the disciples or speaking to the disciples here, they had not yet experienced the persecution that they would. To them, it was just an idea And it had not come to fruition yet to its fullest extent. And the same is for us today. We understand that persecution is inevitable, but we have not faced it in the same way in which they faced it. But yet, that does not mean it's not going to happen to us. It's just a matter of when. And therefore, we ourselves need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Knowing that any day, suffering and affliction could be ours our burden to bear. And we need to know how we are to face that kind of persecution. It is amazing, kind of as a side thought or a preface to this, that despite persecution, the church grows. And in fact, it doesn't just grow. It is true that the church grows more rapidly in the face of persecution more than any other time. Think of the early church when it was persecuted. What happened? The people spread and it grew. It grew tremendously. It grew rapidly. 
And that is true today. We see this in many countries where the church grows more rapidly in the face of persecution. So we know the fact is persecution is inevitable. Jesus is implying this in his teaching in verse 18 and through the rest of this passage here. So then let's look at a a number of reasons or two primary reasons for which Jesus says they will be persecuted. Why are they going to be persecuted? Well, persecution is experienced first because the world hates Christ. We see this beginning in verse 18. Jesus says to them, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Is there any source of comfort in the face of persecution? Yes. And it is this, that Jesus is able to sympathize with our sufferings because he himself suffered first at the hands of the world. So when the time comes in which we face persecution, and for the disciples at this moment, when he is forewarning them, when they face persecution, they must remember and they can reflect upon the fact that Jesus himself first suffered afflictions. He suffered first, having been rejected by his own despised and hated by the world, and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Remember what John 1.11 says? He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, prophesied that he would suffer and be afflicted. And in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, that Christ himself was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He faced similar trials and yet was able to overcome them, being sinless and perfect. And this is reflected in verse 18. Actually, in verse 18, when he says, you know that it hated me before you, it's actually an imperative Really what Jesus is saying, it's, a, it's more of a, a direct statement. He's saying, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. It's an imperative. Well, this then serves as a point of reassurance. That when we face persecution, we can remember in that moment that Jesus himself experienced unimaginable suffering from the world. Suffering that had already taken place from the Jews who hated him and despised him. And this coming suffering that would take place on the cross. Jesus goes on in verse 19 through 21 to teach us. This as well, persecution is experienced not just because the world hates Christ, but because of the believer's identification with Christ. Because of the believer's identification with Christ. He says in verse 19 to the disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, here it is, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. The reason for which the disciples were going to face persecution is because of their identification with Christ. 
Jesus explains to his disciples that the world will persecute them because they are not of the world. On the one hand, or on the other hand, I should say, those who are like them, like the world, that is, will be loved by the world. In the literal sense, of course, we are of the world since we are all born of mankind. But in the spiritual sense, which Jesus is referring to here, our adoption as sons of God has demarcated us from the rest of the world. It has separated us from the world so that we are no longer like them. True enough, we once were. We were like them in every way, wicked, suppressing the truth. But now we are not like them. We have been separated. We are unlike them. We are more and more like Christ, are we not? As we bear in him uh, his death and his resurrection, the life that we have through Christ. And that is what Jesus is referring to in verse 19 or they're alluding back to in their relationship to him. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Of course, they're not, is his point. As he says later in just following after this, he says, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The choosing is a reference to the work of God who called them by his grace out from their sin, out from the darkness, out from the world into the light. And in doing so, they are now operating in the power of God to walk according to the standard of God in their moral and spiritual conduct so that they no longer look like the world. They look like Christ. And this spiritual transformation is what the world despises. Because they see in the disciples, and it is our prayer that they see in us today, Christ, not the world. And that is what causes them to hate us. That identification that we have with Christ. The the fact that we have a, a moral standard that is in line with God's word, that is in line with Christ and his character and his conduct, that they despise. They reject that. Why? Well, we'll see why later on in this text as we continue on. Let me say this for a moment. The closer our conduct and character aligns to Christ, the more the world will hate us and despise us. Said another way, the more the world sees Christ in you, the more they will despise and hate you. Your identification to Christ is what fuels their animosity towards Christians and towards Christ himself. Verse 20, to go on, Jesus says to them, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute persecute you. Jesus is asking them plainly, do you really think that if they persecuted me, they aren't then going to go on to persecute you? He then refers them back to what he said earlier in John chapter 13, verse 16. Let me read that for you now from that very passage. 
This is in the context of when Jesus is washing their feet and setting an example for them as their master. He says, you call me teacher here in verse 13 of chapter 13. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verse 16, here's where Jesus quotes back to what he said here in verse or chapter 13. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. The point for which Jesus is referring back to chapter 13, verse 16, here in verse 20 of chapter 15 is this. To make this point, if they persecute me, the master, they will also persecute you, the servant. If the, if the master is so much greater, so much more superior, then why would they not persecute the servant who is much less? Of course they're going to persecute you. If they persecute the master who is to be exalted, they're going to persecute the servant who is far much less. Therefore, Jesus says to them, if they persecuted me, the master, they will also persecute you, the follower, the servant. Well, Jesus goes on to tell them much more about the reasons for which they will face persecution. He says in verse 21, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now we need to understand the meaning of why or what he's saying when he says, For my name's sake. There's two possibilities here. It could be that they do it to exalt the name of Christ for his name's sake. Of course, that cannot be true because, as we know, they hated Christ. They despised him. They rejected him. So then the only other option here is they do it for my name's sake means then that they do it because of their hatred for Christ. Because of your identification with Christ they are going to persecute you because they also persecuted me because they hated the name of Christ. They hated who he stood for and who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And therefore, in light of who they think of Christ, they're going to persecute you because of their hatred for Christ himself. Jesus often forewarns of this idea that we will face persecution for his name's sake. Matthew chapter 10, verse 18. 1 Peter 4, 14. You can look these verses up another time. I'll just give you a few. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Acts 4, 17. All of these uh, verses teach us and explain to us the negative sense, sense of the phrase, for his name's sake. Meaning, in these contexts, when he says you are persecuted for his name's sake, it's because of their hatred for Christ that they're going to persecute you. Of course, there's other times in which Paul himself 
references the afflictions and the suffering he's going to face in a way that is in a positive light. He's saying, for Christ's name, I am afflicted. I am suffered. I am suffering. I do it for his glory, for his name's sake. I will suffer persecution. There are passages like this, like Matthew chapter 19, 29, or Acts chapter 5, verse 41, or 2 Corinthians 4, 12. But here in this context, in this in this uh, specific passage, Jesus is telling them, they are going to persecute you, not to exalt my name, because, but because they hate it. And because of your identification with my name. He goes on to say in the end of verse 21, but all these things they will do for to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. We saw that the first purpose or reason for which they were persecuting, were going to persecute them was because they hated Christ. And because of the believer's identification with Christ. Here we see now the reason for which they are going to be persecuted also is because of their unbelief in the Father. We see this in the end of, beginning in the end of verse 21. Because they do not know him, that is the Father, who sent me, Christ himself. Look back with me for a moment at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In verse 22, let me read for you just a passage here that is, uh, teaches us the example or what Jesus is trying to uh, explain to the disciples in chapter 15. Verse 22 of John chapter 10, it says, uh, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Of course, Jesus had already alluded to this fact. He had already told them this. But it's because of their unbelief that they would not believe his words nor his miracles. Jesus answered them here in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Meaning they testify of who I am. I am the Son of God. I do this by the power and the will of my Father so that you might believe, but you don't. You reject me. You reject me as the Son of God and as the Messiah. You reject the miracles and the works that I do in my Father's name. Verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. You are not of my sheep. Because you are unbelieving, you therefore do not believe my works and my words. Your minds are darkened still. They are without belief in the Father and therefore without belief in the Son. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. That's the distinction here between the unbelieving and the believing. They hear his voice. 
verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. What a profound statement there. Speaking of his own deity in the power in which he does, the things that he does, the works that he does, the miracles which he does, and the word which he speaks. And in verse 30, he says what to the Jews is a blasphemous statement. I and my father are one. I am of the father. I am deity. Verse 31, we can see the Jews' response to this statement. He says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. They hated him. They rejected him as the son of God. And they rejected his works as being signs of who he was, pointing to the fact that he was deity. He was the son of God. He was the coming Messiah. And in their unbelief, they hated him. In their unbelief of not only Christ, but of the father himself. And that's the point that Jesus is making here back in chapter 15 of John chapter 15. Verse 21, because they do not know him who sent me. True enough, they were, they were rejecting and despising and hating the Son of God. But in reality, it's because of their unbelief in the Father that they did not accept the Son. Look at verse 22 of John chapter 15, if you're not back there already. Jesus says, if I, had not, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates, my, hates me hates my father also. Now we may be wondering exactly what Jesus is saying there. How could it be true that if he had not come... They would have no sin. Doesn't that, of course, contradict other scriptures of God's word that says, for all have sinned? Don't we know that we are still living in, in, with, in sin? Of course, the disciples under, understood that, and Jesus uh, was not contradicting the rest of scripture. Perhaps the best analogy that we can think of is all those who lived before the law came. Think back to the Old Testament. Before the Mosaic law was given, the God's standard of perfection and holiness, all those who lived before the law, were they not living in sin? Had they not sinned? Yes, they had. Their conscience testified against them in their sin. Their conscience made them accountable for their actions and their behaviors so that they were without excuse in their sin. And then when the law came, it only made them, if we can say, more accountable. 
It broadened the scope of their depravity of sin, teaching them how sinful they actually were. Their conscience already testified that they were sin in sin and 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 uh, def- defiling God's moral standard. The law only exposed the breadth of that, how bad and how depraved they were. And so I believe Jesus is giving a similar analogy or, or confirming the similar thing here. Had Jesus not come, they would not have this new revelation about Christ and who he was. But since he's come, they now are accountable for what they know about Christ and who he is. True enough, they were in sin before. They were defiling and, and they, were, uh, they were without excuse in their sin. But now that Christ has come, now that I have come and I have done these miracles, Jesus is saying, they are now accountable for all that they know about me. Therefore, they are without excuse for hating me and hating my father. Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This is a reference back to Psalms and, and another passage combined. And it's not as if Jesus is reinterpreting or re-giving a new meaning to this text. He's saying uh, simply that this is uh, this verse, the, the things in which David was experiencing in this psalm are things which I, too, am experiencing myself. They hated me without a cause. Christ in his perfection and his sinlessness uh, was hated and despised by the world, though for no justifiable reason. Because he was perfect. But regardless of that, they hated him without a justifiable cause for no good reason. On no moral reason could they condemn Christ, either for his actions or his words. Look then with me now for a moment as at verse 1 of chapter 16. As we alluded to earlier, this is now the purpose for which Jesus is forewarning them. He's given the reasons for which they are going to face persecution. Why? Because they hated Christ. Because of our identification with Christ. And because they hate the Father. That is to say, because of their unbelief in the Father. That's really what it is. These are the reasons for which they are going to persecute you. And now Jesus is telling them in chapter 6, chapter 16 verse 1 this is why i've warned you about this this is why i have forewarned you of the persecution that is to come why here it is these things i've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble that you should not be made to stumble christ understood that the disciples were going to face immense persecution unimaginable persecution And Jesus was preparing them to face this persecution and to stand fast in light of it. What does it mean to be made to stumble? Well, as we spoke about yesterday in our study, there's kind of two ends to the spectrum. Uh, One end, it could be that uh, 
that in, in the face of persecution, they are not able to withstand. That is, either they deny Christ, they turn away from him. Well, that only, that only reveals one thing. They never knew Christ in the first place. If they either turn away from him completely, it reveals that in their denial of Christ, they never knew him in the first place. They never truly were a born-again believer, that is. On the other end of the spectrum, to be made to stumble could mean that they, uh, for a time, for a moment, are tempted to stumble or tempted by the persecution that comes their way to stumble into sin. Let me give an example. Think of the life of Job, who faced immeasurable suffering and affliction, did you not? And as we see the story and, and the, the, the account of Job go on, we know that he was a righteous man. He was a man of God. But in light of that suffering and that affliction, we see him gradually begin to doubt the goodness and the graciousness of God to the point in which he stumbles. God, why, why would you allow this to happen? God, give me my day in court with you. Let me, let me give you my reasons for which I don't think I should be going through this. We can't imagine saying something like that to God, but do we not ourselves sometimes in even the littlest of suffering? Why, God? Why, why, do I go through, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to face this? Do I deserve this? God, are you really good? Are you really gracious? Are you really kind? Even Job, a righteous man, stumbled in one sense. God, why, why me? Why, why do I deserve this? There are other men in Scripture, men of righteousness and, and of godliness, that stumbled as well. Even John the Baptist had his own doubts about Christ at the end of his ministry. Remember him sending his disciples to Jesus, asking them to ask Jesus, Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? That is to come. John the Baptist, though the man he was at, at making way the path straight for the Messiah himself, still himself had a moment of stumbling, of doubt. Are you really the one? Reassure me, Christ. I don't, I don't know. Reassure me. Persecution will do these kind of things to us in which we begin to question. And we must be careful in that, in that persecution to not be tempted to the point of sin. Where we stumble and we doubt God's goodness. We doubt whether or not it is worth standing fast. Whether or not it is worth persevering through it to the end or not. Think of Peter, who just in hours to come would he himself stumble. In light of the persecution that he knew he might 
face if he were to claim his allegiance and his identification with Christ. You remember when he was outside the courts and they questioned him, hey, are you not a follower of Christ? What did he do? He denied it for a time, did he not? How little did Peter understand that in moments after Jesus spoke to them about the coming persecution, would he himself then stumble for a moment? How could he, a follower of Christ so close to him? Well, because of persecution itself and and the temptation that it presents to want to not have to go through it, to have to find some other way to And if it means even doubting God, or in Peter's case, denying Christ for just a moment. For this reason, then, Jesus forewarns them of the coming persecution. Letting them know that these are the reasons for which they are going to hate you. But in light of these things, I tell you them for this reason, for this very purpose, so that when it comes... You do not stumble. Remember, Christ himself has been hated before you. Remember that he has suffered the same afflictions, unimaginable afflictions. Remember, because it is because of their unbelief in God and for which they persecute you. Look at verse 4 of chapter 16 as we close this morning. Jesus says to them, but these things I have told you, that when the time comes, what is the time? Well, the time in which persecution comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Perhaps those words can bear an influence on our minds this morning. Our time, perhaps, has not come in which we face the same kind of severe persecution and suffering and afflictions that Jesus, of course, faced himself and his disciples went on to face. But these words are here for us today so that when the time comes, we may remember them. We may reflect back upon what Christ has said and find them as a source of strength and of comfort and of reassurance and as an exhortation to not stumble When our time comes to stand fast in light of persecution. And in doing so, we will glorify the name of Christ and we will exalt the name of Christ. That is what Paul went on to do. He said, in my body, through my sufferings, my afflictions, I exalt the name of Christ. His name is glorified and I take joy in that. It is our calling to do the same, to take joy in light of persecution, to not stumble, but to stand fast, whatever comes our way. Let's pray this morning as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words and exhortation of Jesus to his disciples, forewarning them of the reasons for which they would be persecuted. And then in chapter 16, for the purpose in which he forewarns them, so that they may not stumble Lord, it is in our nature to not want to suffer, to be afflicted, to be hated, to be despised, to be rejected. Oh, but Lord, it is all worth it 
in the end, as Paul often reflected upon in his letters and epistles, that for the sake of his name, he suffers persecution, that he might be glorified and his name might be exalted. Lord, I pray it be true of our lives as well. It may be not tomorrow, but it may be the next in which we face similar persecutions. Lord, we must be prepared. We must be ready so that we stand fast and do not stumble. Help us, Lord, in that area. We pray this in your name. Amen.